Well, welcome to Docs. Uh, if you guys uh, don't know me yet, my name is David. I'm one of the new pastors on staff here, the church planning candidate. And uh, we get a cool chance to kind of, before we jump into this new series we're going to do in the book of Acts, right, kind of through this whole next year, we're kind of hitting pause and, and we're, we're asking this question, like, if we're going to get one thing right, what's the one thing we have to get right? And, and we're saying that above all, it's love, right? And, and the reason we're kind of stopping and pausing and hitting on this is because if we get this wrong as a church, right, as a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus, if we get this wrong, then it doesn't actually matter what we get right. Jesus says that the people, that his, his followers, are actually going to be like known as children of God by the way that they love people. And Peter says that above all else, as it do as a church, love needs to be the thing that marks us more than anything. Because Peter says that actually like one thing that's true about us, right, is we're a bunch of broken, flawed individuals. And so he knows that like there's going to be sin and failure that's going to mark this community. But he says that if we love well, that will overcome a multitude of sins. And so last week, Rob talked about loving one another, right? The command from Jesus that he's given us, he's saying that actually the love that God has for us is not supposed to stop with us, but it's supposed to flow to the people around us. And we're not free to kind of self-define what this love looks like, right? But last week, we kind of talked about Jesus kind of says, hey, you're supposed to love one another as you love yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a problem with Jesus defining love this way, right? Like, I don't know, maybe you kind of, as you were listening last week, maybe you tuned out. So I just want to like help you just really quick for a second. Think about that, okay? Love the people around you as you love yourself in the same way that you love yourself. That's kind of the, the command that Jesus is putting forward for us to do. Think about what it costs you to love yourself. A pretty significant amount, right? It's time, it's money. Like you're certainly spending a lot of time thinking about your needs thinking about your desires and how you can uniquely meet those. And Jesus says that the same power and the same effort and the same sacrifice that we put forth to love ourselves, we are supposed to put forth the same kind of love to our neighbor. That's like heavy. Like, I don't know if you, like you feel the weight of that, but if you think about that for any moment of time, like you're going to feel the weight of that. And immediately what you're going to do is you're going to start asking a question. Because you're saying Jesus is talking about real love, the kind of love that actually costs us something. And so the question we immediately go to Jesus with are, okay, but what are the limits of that? Because we're, we're feeling the sacrifice and we're feeling the burden of that. So what are the limits? Who exactly are we required to love in this way? And what are we required to sacrifice in order to love these people? And Jesus' answer is interesting because Jesus' answer is that we're not just required to love one another or, or the people who are really close to us, the people who are in this room, but actually Jesus means for his grace that's impacted our lives to affect us in such a way that we would be the kind of people that we go and find the people who are unloved in the world, right? The forgotten, the people who are passed by, the people that the world looks at and says, actually to love this person is going to cost way too much. So you look across the world and you can see those people. They go unloved and forgotten. Why? Because it's extremely costly to love those kind of people. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to love those kind of people. I want you to love those kind of people, love them. So that's what we're talking about today. Not just loving one another, but actually loving the forgotten, loving people who are hard to love, loving people that the world has passed by, and maybe even people that in our own hearts we have passed by. Jesus says, no, I want you to take a second look. Because I'm telling you, 
to love those people. And, and the way I want to kind of set this up, there's a ton of different ways. We could go to all these different sections of scripture and kind of look at this, but I just want to go to one story that Jesus tells us, the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this before, but I want us to like sit in this and let Jesus teach us about what our love is supposed to look like. And so if you've got a Bible, we're in Luke 10. Um, 10, 25 through 37 is the story. Now I want to I read this story for us and then we're going we're gonna to talk about it. Verse 25, Luke 10, says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, real quick, already you're like, okay, a lawyer. Like, don't think lawyer in our day and age, okay? Like, this isn't someone who's, like, standing in a courtroom. This is someone who's, like, a religious expert. Like, they know the Bible really well. They know the laws really well. That's, like, who this is. This is, like, a high, highly moral, highly religious person. So a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus responds to that question, and who is my neighbor, by telling a story. This is, the, this is the parable he gives, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he came to the place where he was, as he journeyed, when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so Jesus asked this question, he says to this man, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Everyone agrees that we should be loving people, right? I don't think there's anyone in the room who'd be like, mm, not into that, right? We agree with that. Everyone feels that. No matter where you're at on the political spectrum, no matter where you're at on like the human spectrum, we're like, yes, we should be loving people. But we also all agree on is that there are limits to how much we should sacrifice for others. And there are limits to the kind of people we should sacrifice for. But Jesus gives us a story where there are no limits. And he means for this story to change our lives. And, and, and this is how he's going to do it. Okay, just three things. When, when we encounter Jesus in this story, it's supposed to change three things about us. It's supposed to change the questions we ask. It's supposed to change the way that we see people, like when we pass them. It's supposed to change the way we see people. And as it does those two things, Jesus means for this story to actually ultimately change the way that we love people. Okay, so the very first thing, encountering Jesus changes the questions we ask. Okay, the very first question that this person asks, I want you to kind of dig in with me and look at what he says, because it's really interesting, okay? Verse 25, 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you, do you catch the contradiction in that question? Right? It's weird, right? He's saying, what shall I do to inherit this thing, right? Well, how, do you do anything to inherit something? No. It's just like natural, right? You're like, yeah, this is my dad, and he's wealthy, and I, I got this money, right? You inherited something. It's nothing about what you do. And so right from the very beginning, we're kind of clued in that this person's view of the kingdom of heaven, this person's view of eternal life, it's warped. It's not the way it's supposed to be. There's this contradiction in him. He gets that he's supposed to inherit it, but he still thinks it has to do with him doing something. And so Jesus, he kind of just goes with this, right? And so he goes, okay, you tell me, what do you think? How do you think you inherit eternal life? How do you kind of read the Old Testament law? And so he, he answers, and, and he answers rightly, right? Jesus says, you answered rightly. What does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, totally. Like, if you do that, you will live. And there's two things that are interesting, Okay. One, he, he seeks to justify himself, and so he asks the secondary question about his neighbor. But I want you to notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask anything about the first part. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your power. He's like, I'm doing that pretty well. <laughs> I just want to know about the neighbor part. That's crazy, okay? That makes no sense. You should not skip past that and then get to the neighbor part. He, he, he has this kind of inflated view of his morality. He has this inflated view of his, his religion. But he combines these two ideas. Rob talked about them, right? Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. Love God, love people. But what the story is trying to do from the very beginning is it's trying to show you a few things about this man. Um, it says that he asked the second question, about his neighbor. Who's my neighbor? It says that he asked this question because he's trying to justify himself, right? He, he's, he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, I want to know like really specifically what is like the minimum requirement that you require for me to be good with you, to be good with God? What do I actually need to do? What's the line I need to step across? So we're supposed to notice about this man a few things. One, he's incredibly self-righteous. If it doesn't come across as you're reading it, I think the more you read it, you'll, you'll realize that. This is an incredibly self-righteous person who's talking to Jesus. And the second thing is we see that he's seeking to justify himself, and he's asking Jesus for the bare minimum. And his question is, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, this is a super important question for us, but it's a really important question for Jewish people, okay? And I want to explain why. Because in, in kind of Jewish thinking... To be a neighbor came with, like, unbelievable responsibility, right? We live near people, and, like, you know, Rob's talking about, like, you're taking out the trash, and you're like, hey, have a good day, you know? It's like, right, like, that's kind of this picture we have, but their societies are, like, deeply communal. Like, to be a neighbor with someone came with tremendous responsibilities. Like, their kids, they were, like, kind of your kids, too, and you were supposed to, like, discipline them and help them and take care of them, and you defended them against enemies and other intrusions in their life. Being a neighbor meant that their needs, they were your needs. Their burdens were your burdens to help carry all of your things were meant to be shared with them. To be a neighbor meant that you used your resources and your gifts and all of your material possessions to be a blessing to them because they're a neighbor, and that meant something. So being a neighbor is a really weighty thing. 
And so it became important to actually know who your neighbor was, and it became important to know who your neighbor wasn't. And the Jewish people had very clearly defined lines. They knew who was a neighbor and who wasn't. And, and their, their, their lines weren't like geographic, right? Like, well, I, I live here. <laughs> I live near this target, right? No. They were ethnic. They were religious. And so this question, who is my neighbor? Who do I actually need to take care of? Who do I actually need to care for and care about? That's the question he asks. But I want you to look at what Jesus does. Because Jesus completely rejects this question. Like, completely rejects it. He doesn't answer the question at all. I don't know if you noticed that. Jesus does this a lot. Someone asks a question, and he's like, hey, I'm going to answer a completely different question. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. Instead of answering this man's question, who is my neighbor, instead he shows him, this is what it looks like to be a neighbor. Not who's my neighbor. I'm going to give you the story that looks like, what does it look like to actually be a neighbor? This person's trying to figure out, who do I actually, who am I required to love and care for? And Jesus says, that's the wrong question. I am going to show you a picture of what it looks like to actually be a loving and caring person. And the way that he does it is by telling him a story. Verse 30, look at this, okay? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. As you're hearing this story, you should be like, oh, that's awesome. Like, that's, that's crazy convenient that, like, the first person who comes by is a priest. Like, that's a pretty good guy, right? But he walks by on the other side of the road, and you're like, oh, that's, that's not good. And so there's a Levite, right? What's a Levite? Well, a Levite's like kind of in the, like the priest's royal bloodline. It's like the same idea. It's like, okay, well, a priest didn't help, but a Levite certainly will. Passes by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. One of the things the story's doing is, is it says this three times, right? The, the priest sees the man in the road, the needy person, passes by. The second person sees him, passes by. Third person well, this third person, the Samaritan, when he sees this person, there's a different thing that happens in his heart. He has compassion on him. And what, one of the things that Jesus is saying is that when you encounter him, when you encounter Jesus, it's actually meant to change the way that you see people. These first two people, they're extremely religious and moral, okay? It's actually part of the story Jesus is trying to say. Both of these people, their job, their, their actual role in society was to take care of the poor and needy. Like, that was their role. Like, they were supposed to do some kind of religious ceremonial things in the temple, but they were also supposed to, like, distribute money and take care of the poor and needy. And so, as you're hearing the story, you're like, oh, my gosh, these are the perfect people to come by. But they don't do anything. They don't do anything. And, and I want you to see one of the interesting things about this story, because this, this story, honestly, is amazing, and we could spend, like, four hours looking at just this story. And if I don't hurry up, we will. Okay, so... They say that they pass on the other side of the road. Okay? It says that. They pass on the other side of the road. Now, this is interesting because their roads are not like our roads. Right? If you think of our, like this happened to me the other day. Like you're driving down the highway and like you see someone broken down, like literally on the other side of the road. And you're like, oh, man, like I would totally help that person if I wasn't on this other side of the road. Right? It's like you feel like there's some distance there. And you're like, okay, like I, is there a U-turn? Oh, it's an illegal U-turn. Well, I don't want to do that. So I don't want to, you know embarrass myself. So you don't help the person, right? And you feel like there's some distance between you and this person who needs help. But this is what's interesting is like, there's no distance here. This is like a trail through the mountains. So like, you're talking like three feet wide through the mountains, and there's like a half dead man laying in the middle of the road. 
Like you, there's no other side of the road. He's just right in your path, right? And he's like an obstacle. They probably had to walk over him. But it says they passed by on the other side of the road. And you're like, that, that road doesn't have another side. It's not a two-lane highway. And so the story from the very beginning is they're saying there was something happening in these people that when they saw this person, they distanced themselves from him. They couldn't do it geographically because the road wasn't wide enough, but they did it psychologically. So when they walk by this person, they're like, well, I'm like three inches from him. And that's enough for me not to feel like I need to help him. But this next person doesn't do that. He sees him, he has a different reaction. And the thing that you need to pay attention to is that he is a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. Does that trigger anyone in here? No, but if you were a first century Jewish person, it would, and you'd be mad, okay? I want to explain what a Samaritan is. A Samaritan represents someone that you despise, someone that you look down on as less than you. It is someone that you have devalued and dehumanized and considered worthless because not only are they not like you, but they are like a primary example of what is wrong with the world. When this person's hearing Jesus tell the story, that's what he hears when he hears a Samaritan comes down the road. Some of you in the room, if Jesus was telling you this story, he'd be like, and then came down the road a white supremacist, right? You hear that and it like triggers something in you. And you're like, I hate that kind of person, right? And you think about that. You're like, this white supremacist, right? Maybe in your mind, like they voted for Donald Trump. They're xenophobic. They, this kind of person yells at Muslims in the supermarket and like tells them to go back where they came from, right? And you kind of hear this and you're like, how could anyone be so racist, so close-minded? How could anyone have a heart that small and love so little? And you look at that person, you're like, that is exactly what is wrong with the world. And Jesus puts that person as the hero of the story. Or maybe you're in the room and, and that's not really your, your thing. Maybe you're like, oh, this is like an abortion doctor, right? Maybe for you, that's like the example of like the worst kind of person, right? They get rich off of killing the most helpless and vulnerable people in the world. And maybe that's your Samaritan. But that's the way Jewish people thought about Samaritans. They hated them. They considered them unclean. In fact, they so marginalized and despised them that Jewish people wouldn't even eat with them. And actually, ironically about this story, the people who usually were the bandits on this road and attacked Jewish people, Samaritans. And Jesus makes one of these Samaritans the hero of the story. He is the one who saw the one lying in the ditch in a different way than everyone else. He is the one who showed mercy. And is, what is Jesus doing? Is he saying, hey, you've got it all wrong. Samaritans are actually this example of morality and goodness in the world. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. But Jesus picks a Samaritan to be the hero of the story because this man couldn't stand them. He couldn't stand them. He looked down on them, and he certainly didn't consider them as someone who was worthy of his love and care. In fact, he would have considered himself objectively better than Samaritans. Not just kind of subjectively, like, okay, you know, you like Minnesota, I like the Badgers, right? It's like, you can be like, I'm a better person because of that. Well, no, that's not what it's talking about. Like, objectively, I am a better person than this other person. And Jesus knows that until the prejudice and self-righteousness of this man is stripped away, he will never be able to be a neighbor to anyone. Jesus knows that. And so what Jesus does is he takes his finger and he puts it on the real source of disunity 
and division and hatred that marks this world. Because the problem with this world is not that there are racists and bigots and abortion doctors or unqualified presidents. The problem isn't that there are rich elites who oppress and abuse the poor. The problem isn't that there are lazy and unproductive people who refuse to take account for their life and make the right choices. The problem with the world is that we think we're better than them. It's a problem. Because when you think you're better than someone, you can't be their neighbor. And when you think you're better than someone, you can't love them as you love yourself. And the reason that Jesus puts a Samaritan into this story is because he wants to get at the real issue. He wants to get at the heart behind this man's question. And I want you to think about this, because when Jesus gives a story about loving those that the world has passed by and forgotten about, He doesn't just give you a compelling story of someone being radically generous and selfless. He doesn't do that. No, as he tells us the story, he puts his finger on the unique area of self-righteousness and prejudice that you have. He's like, I'm not just going to say, hey, look how good and moral this person is. He's like, I'm going to put my finger on the unique self-righteousness that you have. Right? Whatever it is in your life, that box of goodness and morality, that, that kind of moral quality about yourself, that thing that you kind of, you, you, you've built up in your life and you stand on that thing to justify yourself, that thing that ends up becoming the very thing that you stand on to look down and judge the people around you for not being like you. Right? We won't give our hard-earned money to the, the person that's standing on the corner asking for it because we look and we see that they have a new iPhone, and you're like, if, if you made the kind of, kind of sacrifices with money that I do, you wouldn't be in this financial situation, right? The reason you're in this situation is because you're not as wise about money as I am, and so I'm not going to help you, right? You won't give love to the drug, drug addict because their body's being torn apart by their addiction. Because if they could just say no like, like we do, they wouldn't be in this situation. That's the way we think, isn't it? And, and sure, because we're Christians, we will be kind, we will be nice, but we won't love them as we love ourselves. And we won't bear their burden alongside of them. No, we, re- we reserve our love for those who are wise with their money like us. We reserve our love for those who make the same kind of sexual and family decisions that we do. We, we reserve our love and we reserve the, the kind of love that costs something, right? We reserve that kind of love for people who work as hard as we do in the world. And so there's a question, and the question I want to ask is, how do you see the people that God has put in your path? Like, how do you see them? When you see someone is different from you, like when you see them and you're like, this person's different than me because I have this kind of box of self-justifying righteousness that I'm standing on, and I'm not like this other person I'm looking at. When you see people as different from you, you will always limit your love to them. There will always be a limit on how much you are willing to sacrifice. There will always be a limit on how much you identify their burdens as your responsibility. But the story Jesus tells is about someone who doesn't have limits. No limits. Look, look what he does. Like, I want you to look at this because it's extravagant, right? He sees him and he has compassion. And so he goes to him and he, he bound up his wounds. Like, think about that. Like, he, 
he stops and he literally tends to him like a doctor. Like he identifies every kind of wound on his body and one by one he tenderly and in grace bandages his wounds. He's pouring on oil and wine, these expensive things. Like they're being essentially like wasted for his personal use on this half dead man. And then he set him on his own animal and he brings him to an inn. And this is what's awesome. He doesn't just say, hey, I found this guy, here you go. He stays with him overnight. He's never met this man before. He stays with him. And the next day, he's with this, this innkeeper, and he's like, hey, here's, here's some money. I have to go. I have this really important thing I have to get to, but here's a bunch of money to take care of him. And anything he needs, I am going to actually come back. I'm not just going to leave. I'm going to come back and check back up on this person, make sure he's doing okay, and I am taking responsibility for everything he needs. I will pay for it out of my cash. The way that we see people affects the way we love people. And that's the third thing. Encountering Jesus changes the way that we love people. I think for a lot of us, and, I, and I'm, this is not like a, like I feel the weight of this because I'm hearing Jesus like teach me this. I'm like, I don't know if I do this at all. I feel like I struggle so much to love people that are far away from me, that are really different from me. And I think a lot of us, you have the same kind of view of loving people that I essentially have. And it's like, I'm okay with helping and loving people as long as it doesn't really cost me anything, right? It's like, hey, if I don't have anywhere to be, I'll totally stop and help this person change a tire, right? That'd be awesome. I'd feel good about myself doing that. But if I'm going to be late for something, hey, I can't stop, right? It's like we're all, we are all about sharing the burdens of others as long as it doesn't actually become a burden to us, right? How like backwards is that thinking? Like a burden is heavy and it feels like a burden to carry it. And so what we end up doing is we're like, I'm okay helping people as long as I'm never actually helping anyone. The kind of love that the Samaritan has is radical. It's self-sacrificial. And, and I think it, it, what it does is it, it overturns almost every single kind of like self-preservation instinct that we would have. Because someone lying half dead on this road, this, this road, there's a place on it called the Pass of Blood. <laughs> Why? Because there's always bandits there. And one of the things bandits almost always do is they leave someone who looks really needy and they leave someone there so that some sucker will walk across the way and see that person and go, ooh, I'm going to help this person. And then you know what the bandits do? They attack them. This is a normal looking first century trap, right? And the reason the priest and the Levite walk by, it's not just because they're terrible people, it's because they're smart, calculating people. And they look at that and they go, there's a pretty good chance this is gonna cost me a lot to stop and help this person. Like a lot. Like maybe all my money, maybe my horse, maybe everything I have with me, maybe it's gonna cost me, I'm gonna be the next person lying in a ditch all bloodied up. The Samaritan knows that too. He's not an idiot. But when he sees him, he has compassion. And he goes, I'm going to help him. It costs him his time, his money, his plans. It actually changes his place in society, right? He goes from someone who's sitting on a horse riding through this road to standing like a servant with this person on his ride. Sometimes loving people is going to cost you your place in society, 
Maybe you won't be able to kind of have, have the kind of house you want or the kind of cars you want or the status in society you want because the person that you're loving and caring for, they are actually sucking enough resources from you that it's actually a burden. It was for this person. It changes his place in society. That's how much he loves this person. And so he just asked this guy, he says, hey, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Right? Which of these three like, pr- like evidenced their love and evidence that they're a neighbor to this person. And, you know, and he, he, he can't even say Samaritan because he's so prejudiced against him. So he just says, the, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. The man who's talking with Jesus, he asked Jesus to tell him exactly who his neighbor is. And Jesus responds with a story of self-sacrifice and generosity, and he says, you go and do likewise. I think we're so much like this man, right? And in so many different ways, right? We're asking Jesus all the time. We're saying, Jesus, just tell me what I have to do, okay? And one of the ways we do this a lot is we, we say, Jesus, tell me how much money I actually have to give to the church, right? Just give me a number. Like, give me a percentage. Just tell me exactly what I have to do to give to the church. Tell me who my neighbor is and what I have to do for him, right? Just give me the minimum amount that I have to do in order for me and God to be cool, right? I don't want him mad at me. I want to be good with him. Jesus won't do this. He won't answer that question. Jesus doesn't tell tell you how much money you need to give to the church, Right? Tithing 10%, it was like an Old Testament principle. But in the New Testament, Jesus refuses to give you a minimum. Instead, what Jesus does is he takes all your poverty and all of your debt and all of your sin upon himself, and he drowns under the weight of it in order to give you the riches of his Father in heaven. And he simply says, now you who have received all the riches of heaven and you have an inheritance now that is undefiled and waiting for you in heaven, you now go out into the world and be generous. Jesus just says, I give up everything for you. Now, now you go and figure out what it looks like to be generous. We come to Jesus and we say, how much do I have to give? And he says, wrong question. And in the exact same way, we come to Jesus and we say, who is my neighbor? We come to God and we say, okay, I know you've saved me. I know you've helped me out big time. So I want to know exactly what I need to do for us to be even. And I know that you, you care about people, right? I know you care about people that even I don't care about, and you love them. So I'm, I'm serious. I want to know, like, what, what do I actually have to do for us to be good? Jesus won't play that game. He won't answer the question. Because people whose lives have been transformed by an encounter with grace, people who, like, feel the weight of God's grace in their lives, they don't ask those kind of questions. They just don't. There's this movie... I don't know if you guys have seen it. Have you, has anyone seen The Count of Monte Cristo? Has anyone? Raise your hand if you've seen it, just so I can know. Okay, so a lot, most people haven't. Um, it's actually a really good movie, and I'm going to skip, like, all the plot line, okay? But there's this one, there's this one scene where the, there's the, the main kind of protagonist, the main hero of the story. He's this, he's this guy who basically gets unjustly accused of a crime and gets sent into prison. And he's in the prison for, like, an extremely long amount of time, and he ends up, like, meeting this old wise sage who's essentially, like, a Mr. Miyagi-type person, teaches him, like, how to fight and knife fight, all this crazy stuff, teaches him wisdom, all these things. And he's in prison for this incredibly long amount of time, okay? He eventually figures out how to escape from prison. It's, like, the first half of the movie. 
And then there's this scene where he like escapes from prison and he's like, you know, almost on the verge of death. He like gets, you know, crashed by these waves. And eventually he wakes up this next scene. He's on a shore. He can see his old, you know, like this old prison in the distance. And he's like, I am free. I'm free. This is amazing. And, this story, and the movie's like kind of funny because as it's like, he's running on the beach and it's like really funny, like, I'm free. And you realize that like he stumbled upon this band of like murderous thieves. <laughs> like they're the ones who are on this island waiting for him. And you're like, oh, that is like a huge bummer. Cause he's been playing this game for 30 years and he's gonna be killed by these people, right? And so what happens is there's this moment where you realize like, why are these thieves on this island in the first place? And the reason they're there is because one of their crew is worse than all of them. He isn't just a thief like them, but he stole from them, right? He's getting his hand in the gold pot when no one's looking. And they're like, we brought our friend here to kill him. We're going to bury him alive. That's why we're here. Why are you here? And he's like, I just escaped from prison. They're like, yeah, it kind of looks like it, you know? And so there's this moment where the captain, he's like, here's what we're going to do. Some people like this guy, even though he stole from us. You're new here. We don't care about you at all. Uh, We're going to give you guys both knives, and you're going to fight to the death. And whoever wins, they can live, right? Whoever wins will join our team. The other person will die. And so there's this, there's this knife fight. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny story because they're like, hey, like this guy, this thief, he's the best knife fighter we've ever seen. And you're like, yeah, but this guy's been training for this for the last 30 years with this Mr. Miyagi guy, okay? So anyway, he, like, you know he's going to win. And there's this thing that happens where they're, they're fighting and they're like, they're, you know, they're going at it, they're going at it. And this thief is trying to kill the main hero of the story. But the man here doesn't want to kill him. He's not a killer. He's actually a pretty good guy. And so what happens is he ends up like getting rid of this guy's knife and he has him on the ground. And he knows from the captain, if he doesn't kill this guy, they're going to kill him. And so he has his knife on his throat. And what he does is he pulls his knife back and he stands back and he starts to plead for this person's life with the captain. He's like, don't kill this guy. He probably has a good heart. Yeah, he's made some mistakes. Yeah, he's just a worthless guy, but keep him alive. Don't kill him. He pleads for his life. And the person who's on the ground knows that this costs him something. Because there's a pretty good chance him doing this is going to get him killed. But it doesn't. Captain's like, okay, fine. You've made a good point. We'll keep both of you on the ship. The movie goes forward. But there's this unbelievable moment. And the reason I'm telling you the whole story is there's this moment in the movie where this guy, this guy named Jacoba, he's, he was supposed to die. He's on the sand with a knife at his throat. And this guy spared his life, potentially at the cost of his own. And so he grabs him. He's on the ground in the sand, and he's looking up at this person who has saved him from the brink of death, and he grabs him, and he pulls him close. And this is like this really intense moment in the movie. And he just says, like, I swear on everything, like all my ancestors, even the ones I don't like, a little humor mixed in there. And he's like, I'm telling you, I am yours forever. Like, I will do whatever you want. Does not matter. There are no limits. I am yours. And the whole rest of the movie, he is this person's servant. Whatever he wants, I'm there. I will do it. Why? Because I know what it's like to receive grace. No limits. None. Zero. That person gets it. And I think a lot of us in the room, myself included, we don't. We don't get it. This is what it looks like to be someone who's saved by grace and grace alone. People 
People who try to earn their own salvation always have limits on what they're willing to do for God. They always do. But it's people who have received grace and they know what it costs the person who saved them. Those kind of people, they don't have limits on what they're willing to do for God. They don't view their standing as something that's earned and because of that, they don't have limits on who they'll help. They don't have limits on how much they'll help. I want you to notice this real quick. I'm almost done, but I want you to see this last thing. Um, Jesus tells this story in a really interesting way. I don't know if you caught this, but this is a weird way to tell this story, okay? Um, Because if this story was about trying to get this man to let go of his prejudices and self-righteousness, right? It's like there's a way to tell this story that's simpler and, and, and way more like effective for that, right? Because the way you just normally tell this parable is you'd frame the story something like this. You'd say, hey, there's this guy walking down a road who's just like you, very similar to you. He's Jewish. He knows the law pretty well, pretty high, upstanding guy, fairly well off. And he sees in a ditch someone who's dead. And the person who is half, sorry, half dead, the person who's half dead is a Samaritan, right? And what would happen in that moment is this person's heart would be like, I would never help that person. And he tells the story and he goes, yeah, look, this person who's just like you, look what he does for this Samaritan. He heals him. He gives him grace. He lavishes him at his own expense. Look how he loved his enemy as himself. You go and do likewise. That'd be a simple story. It would make sense. Not the story Jesus tells. Because that story can't change your life. Now, the only thing that story does is it lays on you a guilt trip because you're not like that person. You don't love your enemies. You don't love the people who are very different than you. You don't love the people that you think are better, that you think you're better than. And so what that story would do is that story would just give you this like high, lofty, moral vision for your life. It'd be like a high bar. And it's like, hey, jump over this. Good luck. Try. Jesus tells a totally different story. Because when he gives this man a story, the only unnamed person that this man can identify with not the priest, not the Levite. He's not those things. Not the Samaritan. He's not those things. Who is it? It's the person in the ditch. The story starts with him. Jesus is like, that's who you are in the story. You're the person lying half dead in the ditch. And a Samaritan comes and saves you. Where the one who came upon you wasn't your neighbor. That person didn't owe you a single thing but he made you his neighbor and he chose to love you. The reason this story is important and the reason Jesus tells this story is because this story is the gospel, right? The Good Samaritan, the whole story, it's the gospel, pure and simple, right? Because like this man, we were all laying half dead in a ditch and the person who came upon us was God. The one that found us wasn't like us. He didn't owe us anything. He wasn't obligated to us in any kind of way, but we had rejected him and pushed him away. We had cast him aside for our own way of life and our own wants and our own desires. We had made him our enemy. And yet when he saw us, he had compassion for us. He had compassion for us. When he saw our wounds and how hopeless and needy we were, he got off his seat of power and safety and he actually gave it to us. He saw our wounds and he looked at them long enough and he studied what we needed long enough to actually give it to us, to bandage them and heal them. And he stayed with us. He became close to us. He paid the price 
for everything we needed to be healed. The point of the story is that when God saw you, there was nothing that connected him to you. Nothing. You weren't neighbors. There was no geographic or ethnic or cultural tie that linked him to you. You were not wise like him. You were not holy and moral like him. But your situation in life was caused by your choices. They were caused by your foolishness and your failure. And that's what got you in the ditch in the road. But when he saw you, he joined himself to you. Not just as a neighbor, but as your family. And he took your burden upon himself. And he carried it all the way to the cross in your place. And he did that because when he saw you, he loved you. And that love was so very costly. There's two ways that you can try to compel someone to love people that are forgotten and passed over and hard to love. The, the way that we normally expect to find in church is this, right? You come in and you are given a vision of generosity and self-sacrifice that's compelling and it's like convicting and difficult and you're basically laid on with a guilt trip. Like you are supposed to be doing this, Christian. Why aren't you doing it? And there's something in that that's motivating, right? But that can't change your life. It'll just make you feel bad about yourself. So what Jesus does, he doesn't lay on a guilt trip on you. He doesn't say, be like this Samaritan. He says, no, I am the good Samaritan. And I love you in this exact kind of way. He comes to you and he gives you this story to remind you that you actually are the person in the ditch. You were the person in the ditch. And he loved you in this radical, self-sacrificing way. And he says that this story, getting this story in your bloodstream, this is going to be the kind of thing that actually changes you. So as we're sitting here, we're asking this question, we're saying, okay, we're supposed to love people well. We know that this is going to be like, above all, we're supposed to do this. The question is like, how do we do it? How do we actually do it? Well, there's a few things, okay? I just want to get really practical for like one minute and they'll be done. How do we become like this good Samaritan, right? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that we were once in a ditch. It's like if we remember nothing from that story, it's like we need to remember that we were once the one in a ditch, right? The beautiful thing about being in a ditch is that you can't look down on others because you occupy the lowest spot in the road, right? I love it. You can only look up at other people. If you understand that you're completely helpless and needy and broken and Jesus saved you by grace alone, then when you see the kind of people that are hard to love, the people the world has passed by because the cost is too high, the risk is too great, when you see yourself as the one in the ditch, you'll see those people like yourself. So that's the first thing. Remember that you're in a ditch. The second thing is see the people that God puts in your path. You don't need to go out into the world and look for people that need help. They're right in front of us. They are in our direct path. We are supposed to see them and have compassion on them, right? One of the things that's supposed to mark the people of God is not only do they love people in their own group. Like, I hope that Doxa Church is a place where we love the people in this room so well. But Christians are supposed to be the one group of people more than anyone else who loves people that aren't like them. The people the whole rest of the world says it's too costly. Christians say, Jesus loved me when I was too costly. So I'm going to love those people as well. And then the third thing is just this, love people by meeting their needs. In order to meet people's needs, you actually have to know them. Dumping some money on a homeless person, it, it's, it's, I guess it is a good thing to do, but that's not being a good Samaritan, right? 
Sure, it's better than just walking past on the other side of the road, but this is talking about meeting people's actual needs. The Samaritan got close to this man. He studied his wounds and his scars long enough so they actually knew the right remedy. That's how Jesus wants us to love people. And the last thing is this. Don't ask God to give you the minimum requirement, but ask God to give you a vision for a radically generous life. These are maybe these last two questions. Are you like the lawyer who seeks to justify himself by seeking after the bare minimum requirement and then ensuring that you do that? Or are you like the one who was found lying half dead in a ditch? Sees all their life and all their positions as a grace gift from God. And instead of asking, who is my neighbor? We ask Jesus, what does it look like to be a neighbor to this person? And I hope that as we continue just like feeling the story, that we be the kind of people that we don't come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, who am I required to love and care for? But that we be the kind of people that just say, Jesus, like, how can I love and care for this person in the same way that you've loved and cared for me? Let's, let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, thanks that when we were totally desperate and needy, you found us. And even though we were so far from you, even though we had nothing in common, even though our predicament was our own fault, when you saw us, you, you decided to join yourself to us and say, I'm going to make their burden my burden. I'm going to make their needs my needs. I'm going to love them at great cost to myself. And Jesus, when we remember that story, it changes our lives. And so, Jesus, we want to be the kind of church, the kind of group of people that the broken, the needy, the forgotten, the passed over in Madison, that those people aren't forgotten by us. Jesus, we are the people that weren't forgotten. You found us. You loved us. Jesus, please, would we go and do likewise? In your name, amen.